Welcome to Naturally Nourished, a food is medicine podcast that delivers cutting-edge information and solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought out by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine intervention. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only not be used in place of any medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from a licensed health professional. Now welcome your host, Allie Miller, integrative dietitian and owner of Naturally Nourished, and her vice president, integrative dietitian Carly Vogler. Hey guys, welcome to episode eight. Today's topic is get back in the kitchen, and I'm super stoked about today's episode, which is really about making food as medicine a reality. You know, all of the world's best recipes and tips and all of our advice can only do so good if you create some action. So, you know, getting yourself cooking, getting yourself in the kitchen is the best way to take true control of your diet. And the only way to really ensure that you are consuming the best sources and the most nourishing foods. So Carly, um, welcome. Good to see you today. You too. Hi. Um, So tell listeners about maybe your experience of cooking and what your perspective or relationship with cooking has been over this past year. Sure. So the beginning of the year was probably more of a survival mode for me than it was something that's optimal. (laughs) I was finishing up getting my license and finishing school, and it was probably just the height of my stress that I've experienced in the past at least five years. So I'd never compromised quality, and I never went to processed food, but I did get a little bit monotonous, and I relied on some go-to staples that weren't necessarily something that made me feel nourished and happy and fulfilled, but it was survival mode. Um, like a, buying an organic rotisserie chicken from Whole Foods. It was, I knew it was good quality, but sure. it just wasn't, you know, not me in the kitchen cooking. And did you find yourself like last episode doing more snacks than meals with that of, you know, oh, creating, yes. getting your calories, getting your nourishment, but maybe not having those balanced meals that work with flavor profiles and, and things like that? Exactly. It got it got to the point where it was just and not even getting enough carbohydrate probably because it was just easy cheese and some rolled up turkey and some avocado or something, just sure. all single ingredient, no prep eat with a fork, but you <laughs> know, it was good. Yeah, or not. Um, it was good, but it wasn't, you know, my gold standard like we talk about. So I would say for me, it's gotten better, luckily. And now I try to cook on Sunday. So I'm okay. prepped for the week and I have all my meals, lunches, and some dinners. And that is what is my gold standard is, is feeling I have it a plan and I get to change the recipes every week. So it kind of goes back and forth depending how busy I am, but I always feel my best when I'm cooking, but I also grew up cooking. I mean, my mom taught me a lot. My grandmother cooked. So I think that was always a leg up for me in having it be a part of my life. And so in the last five months now, I think you've been licensed. And so you kind of transitioned back to more being cognizant, planning, and, and, and maybe, maybe making balanced meals per se. And then I know even recently with your move, has that kind of created a whole new reset and, and, and kind of going from a roommate to, to having a reset of a new kitchen of things. I think that I know personally every move I've had that it's like that purging and yes. <laughs> getting rid of old spices, oh my gosh. Um, reminding yourself of tools that you neglected and things like that. Have you seen a change there as well? Oh my gosh, that's such a good point. So I just moved and I finally have this big kitchen and it's all organized and and it's with my boyfriend as opposed to just a friend. 
And so I feel as it's a shared space and it's mine instead of just sharing it and kind of walking on eggshells. So now it's so therapeutic when I'm there and it's calm and I know where everything is. It's organized. So that's such a good point. I'm glad you brought that More up. cohesive for yes. sure. So oh my like gosh. the kitchen versus a part of your kitchen. Right. Mm-hmm. And not just getting in, getting out to like get my work done. It's like, I'm going to stay here as long as I need. And the TV is right in front of me. We could put on music. And I now look forward to it as opposed to chucking it off and just getting it done. Yeah. Um, yeah. But how about you? Tell me, tell me, I know you've always cooked and... Brady is wonderful in the kitchen, your husband. So what's your deal with cooking right now? Yeah. Well, and I would say always relative, probably from age 20 and on, you know, um, I actually, my mom did cook, but did a lot of quick prepare meals, a lot of um, Campbell's, uh, you know, like cream of chicken soup on a bag of frozen broccoli with chicken breast. I think that I honestly experienced at max six or seven vegetables um, in, you know, up through high school into the beginning of college. Okay. Uh, so definitely, you know, we, we were not doing a lot of seasonal produce, a lot of staples. Um, and so I really started to learn more about produce and vegetables when I got into the real food movement and sustainability. And that's when I started to experience things like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know the difference of an onion, a shallot and a leek. You know, like the onion was the only thing I actually knew existed, except for maybe I had potato leek soup once, (laughs) but not because I experienced it in a kitchen. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty common too. So I came to fall in love with food and definitely started cooking a lot more when I was at Bestier and learning about the therapeutic properties of cooking. And I find uh, cooking to be very therapeutic, very balancing and, and kind of an art form. It's it's to me like painting. Um, but the reality is, you know, as the ebbs and flows of my work life are, sometimes I can understand absolutely how some listeners are like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's daunting. It's a task. It feels overwhelming or like another chore after after a really long day. Mm-hmm. And so I'm totally blessed and grateful that that Brady, my husband, is able to pick up the slack currently with where we're at with, with working, now I'm working like 12 hour days, getting a lot of things rocking and rolling with the business, that I'm able to come home to a nourishing meal. And I think that's the only way I'm able to work that way. Otherwise, I would have to prioritize pulling back because I don't physically feel well when I'm not eating homemade food that I have control over. Um, And and my husband is very on board with the whole real foods movement as well. And so I I think that, you know, either one of us being in the kitchen is great, but I try to do at least three a week that I'm hands on with. And I will say when I started doing my elimination diet with with the MRT diet, uh, I guess I started that, let's see, in the end of July, early August, that was really helpful because I had been relying heavily on Brady. And then, you know, he was a little overwhelmed with my elimination list of the things I couldn't have. I couldn't have things like olive oil. And so we had to get really creative using things like walnut oil and dressings and things like that. And that I was really forced to cook like five to six days a week until he really got the new routine. And now we've kind of redistributed, but I've stayed more active. So I think it does. It ebbs and flows. It's different with where we're living. It's different with our our work demands. But the essential component is that it is a piece of, of really driving optimal eating. Yep. I think that's great. Before we talk about where to start for everyone who's kind of hovering around the idea of cooking, yes, <laughs> let's talk about why cooking matters. Sure. So, I mean, I think we've talked about quality as a big element. One, one thing I, I talk about that I think is really important to consider is 
Think about the food choices that you make on a day-to-day basis. It's estimated that we make about 300 food-related decisions per day. And so thinking about the idea of something like a French fry, okay, if every food decision that you made every day revolved around something that you had a role in preparing, what food decisions would you make differently? You know, and so something like a French fry, I, I'm thinking that most listeners maybe have a French fry like three to four times a week, which which might be high for some listeners. But honestly, I mean, even with a good bistro burger or whatnot, um, and for some, maybe one to two, but still, if you think of the process of making a French fry, like cutting those russet potatoes or, you know, maybe sweet potatoes, depending on what type of fry you're eating. And then filling a vat uh, or a large container with with oil, which is expensive, heating that oil up to the point of frying, it's going to be spattering, making a mess all over your kitchen, staining your walls, um, and then deep frying, then straining and draining, you know, and then cooling, and then finding a way to discard that frying oil, and then cleaning up, degreasing the big mess, likely, instead of just going through a drive-thru or just having them on your plate to nibble off of, you would eat French fries a lot less and you'd go for roasted smashed potatoes. You'd go for boiled potatoes and mashed or twice baked. Uh, a lot more of the simpler, more nourishing options. I think beyond the process of and the labor that goes with it, I think people would be probably so much more grossed out by seeing how this all happens too. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So that in itself, knowing the amount of oil that's getting saturated into there would probably be enough to kind of turn your belly yep. and you'd probably go for another technique. So so the technique is huge and, and creating that thought process. I would challenge you all to when you make your decisions every day, think through the process of how this is made and how many steps are involved and how easy it would be for you to do yourself. And then the big thing I also think of with why cooking is important is you're helping with the immediate versus the delayed gratification. Part of the nourishment experience is that delayed gratification, tasting the food through the process, preparing, we eat with our eyes, our our other sensory um, elements, and so smelling. That can be very nourishing in itself, um, being hands-on within the preparation. And then I think the the third thing that's really huge is quality control. You know, so quality control as well as as far as making sure that it is grass-fed beef or pasture-raised protein, making sure that the oils that you're choosing are not rancid and are good quality and organic, and that you're using fresh seasonal produce. And and that's where you're going to get your big bang for your buck on nutritional density. And, and you really only have that in the kitchen. I love to hope that I can trust restaurants that are farm to table and whatnot, but I've heard a lot of, of honest stories from farmers where maybe their, their farm is on the menu and they'll say to me, you know, friends at the market, well, <laughs> that restaurant has had us on their menu as a farmer, but they haven't ordered from us in three to four months or, mm-hmm. you know, they haven't paid an invoice or so a lot of it can be lip service. Unfortunately, the only way you really have transparency is in your own kitchen. That's a great point. I'm really glad you brought that up because quality control is huge. Absolutely. So how do you think our listeners can ensure that they're getting good quality food? I think the best place to start is finding your farmer's market in your local area because that's the way that you can really not only vote with your dollar on the sustainability of the food system, also support local growers. But, you know, we've talked about how nutritional density has decreased with the industrialized farming methods. And so, you know, if we're buying big ag organic, we're not getting the most nourishing food. Doing your farmer's market or signing up for a CSA, a CSA is a community-supported agriculture. A CSA is generally going to be delivered in shares. 
So you might have a pickup site, but what you do with a CSA is you sign on for a season, maybe like 16 weeks of length. You might have a weekly or a bi-weekly pickup or again, drop off at your home. And with that, it's really cool because you're going to get a box of produce that is locally produced, um, locally grown, and uh, choosing one that's sustainable or organic would even be superior. And then the really neat thing is it pushes you out of your comfort zone. Same thing at the market. If every time you go to the farmer's market, you have your staples, you can think conceptually versus always grabbing broccoli, 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 or green bean, green bean, green bean, you know, you can think conceptually of, okay, I need something that's going to be good in a saute or stir fry. And you can actually converse with the farmers and they might give you these really cool heirloom beans, or they might talk to you about snap peas or okra or, you know, things that maybe you haven't been exposed to that will give you a much more rich, diverse web of nutrition. I think it's really addicting too. If you get to the farmer's market, you, you start to have these connections with people, you know, exactly where your food's coming from. And it's almost like a boutique of food. It's hard to go back. And, and actually that's a good thing. I think when you, when you finally connect to your farmers and your local sources, but it's definitely something if you haven't, you should try. Yes. And it's a little, can be intimidating at first. I think for some, when you don't, feel that you've been there before, it's something new and you feel intimidated because there's all these new people and you have to make these decisions not based on what's given, but out of all these different people, how do you choose between carrots? But just getting to know people, it's all about the conversation and sticking locally. And I think that's that that connectivity that, that makes it less intimidating is the community element. And, you know, you'll see definitely at the Houston based farmers markets. And when I lived in, uh, outside of Seattle, uh, you will see a lot of chefs there because the the foodie movement is all about local sustainable produce because it just tastes so much better. That's what I was going to say. It's, yes. yes, it's nutritionally dense, but it tastes better. Absolutely. It's so much more rich in flavor. And we talk about like the brick scale, which is going to look at sugar uh, concentration in produce, always substantially lower with the local seasonal produce. And so you're going to see a lot of chefs in chef coats, you know, pending on the chef, some of them might be more approachable than others. But um, what we've really done uh, naturally nourished at the markets in Houston is tried to really serve people that are intimidated by having a newsletter. And a lot of those are archived on our blog. So when you go to the food is medicine section, you know, it'll talk about things like sun chokes or Jerusalem artichokes, how they work as food as medicine in the body, and then link you to some recipes that feature them. And that's a great thing. You know, if you guys get something cool at the market, ask us on the Ask Alley tab on the blog, and we can do a whole episode talking about different ways of preparation. Um, Because that's, I think, a big mission of mine is getting people more food diversity. I think that's a really big key to, to the quality control for sure. And I think a really simple but fun experiment is crack a regular egg from the grocery store right next to a farmer's market egg, and the yolk is just almost neon. It's so much brighter and richer. The pasture-raised eggs. That's enough to convince you. Try that at home. Yes, totally, totally. (laughs) Okay, so beyond the market alley, how do you recommend grocery shopping? Do you have any tips or techniques? Because I know a lot of times people go in there and they just want to know what's the best choice? And there's so many choices. And I think another thing that that happens, unfortunately, is people go with a list and then they don't understand the concepts of the food and they get stuck in that rigidity. And it's like, oh no, they're out of spinach. What do I do? It's like, well, you could use collard greens, you could use chard, you could use, uh, you know, so what are the replacements and how do foods work basically is really important to understand the mechanics. 
So, you know, one of the things I'm sure a lot of you have heard is the idea of shopping the perimeter. The exterior elements of the grocery store are going to have more of the viable, wholesome foods. So it's going to be your produce. Fill in the gaps from what you weren't able to get at the farmer's market, but start with the farmer's market as your inspiration because you're not going to get the consistency. You're going to get more, again, variability there, but you also get dynamic elements there. Then, you know, I would say choose four different proteins. So it's also going to be the perimeter. There's going to be the seafood section and the meat section. I generally do like one cut of either a steak or a chop. So it could be like a sirloin steak or if I'm feeling fancy, a tenderloin or a pasture-raised pork chop or a lamb chop. Then I'm going to always choose a roast, which is something I can do in my slow cooker. And I usually do that on a Sunday. So a roast would be something like a um, shank or something like that, something that I'm going to do for about at least six hours time, slow cooker. And then uh, ground meat, I'm always rotating between ground buffalo, ground grass-fed beef, um, even ground turkey excuse me, ground turkey or ground chicken that I can do in like meatballs or something like that or a meatloaf or a uh, taco-less taco in lettuce cups or cabbage cups. And then I always choose a fish. So salmon, halibut, I like to do grouper and snapper out here. Those are local golf fish. And, and I think that that's the way that you can really build. So you start with your produce, then you have your proteins, and then you figure out, okay, now with the salmon, I'm going to go Asian profile and now I'm going to get a little bit of ginger. I'm going to do a little bit of mint in there and I'm going to do that over a salad with some pear slices. And then, you know, with my roast, I'm going to make that rustic. I'm going to use rosemary. I'm going to use some red wine, some beef bone broth and some uh, Yukon gold potatoes, some other root vegetables like carrots and onions in there. And uh, maybe that's just served on its own. And then with the chop, I'm going to do some stir fried broccoli or um, cauliflower roast with truffle salt, you know, so you start to then build uh, meals out of those options and very clean, very single ingredient. Perfect. I think that's a really good starting place for everyone. And other than that, are there any other staples like the bulk bins or some canned oh, items totally. that you would recommend? Yeah, I think that's good to bring light to. And, and you know, the staples, you don't have to get weekly. So these are more maybe once a month or something like that. I do use the bulk bins where I might get a variety of different whole grains. If I'm in a grain mode, I rotate kind of some, sometimes I'll go four months or more without grains. Uh, also, uh, we can get our nuts and seeds in that section, some dried fruits, looking for sulfite-free and organic. And then uh, also in the aisles, I like to look for not canned food per se, but jarred tomatoes. So I really like the jovial or Eden tomatoes that don't have any added oil. So I can make a very simple sauce out of those. And then the only canned food that I really go for is the Eden beans. Um, I like to soak my beans and make beans from scratch, but for a quick weeknight option, um, if I want to make migas, let's say, and just scramble some eggs with heavy cream and cilantro and jalapenos and a bunch of those fresh market veggies, I can whip open a can of Eden beans. And I like that brand because they're BPA-free, and they also use what's called kombu. Kombu is a sea vegetable that breaks down the phytates, which create gas and bloating. And so you get really fiber, mineral rich. You also get to absorb more of the minerals when the kombu is in there. It helps to reduce the anti-nutrient effect of the bean. And so you're getting that nice um, chewy mouthfeel of the starch within a dish. And it's, it's really easy to throw together for like a quick chili or something like that too. Yeah, Eden, Eden's a great brand. And Definitely. just beyond even the canned stuff, they've yeah, got a lot of good things. For sure. Um, and talk to us about fresh herbs. I know you're a huge fan of using these. And this was the one tip I remember you giving in a grocery store tour that you were telling people it takes food and dishes to the next level and really for makes sure. it res restaurant style. But it's so simple that it's hard to believe 
you can make food taste that much better with herbs. Yeah, yeah. You know, herbs are not only delicious, they are super antioxidant rich. They pack so many nutrients into a small amount and have so much flavor. So anytime that you're cooking with foods, I always recommend one to three fresh herbs. So when I'm filling my produce basket of the herbs I didn't get from the farmer's market, I'm always going to grab my staples are, um, you know, a handful of basil, oregano, rosemary I mentioned, but I have rosemary growing um, as bushes in my yard. And then um, I try to grow herbs year round, but, but I do run out. I love cilantro being in the Southwest here. Um, and also things like parsley. So I think, yes, fresh herbs are a great thing and they pack a punch of nutrients as well as flavor. They take your foods to the next level. If you are using dried, it's a three to one ratio. So same thing, vice versa. If you're reading a recipe that has, you know, dried oregano and it's a teaspoon, you would use a tablespoon or more. But I always joke about Americans' perception of herbs and seasonings. You know, if you look at like Indian cooking and Ayurvedic, they're like throwing like handfuls of seasoning into things and we're like an eighth teaspoon or 16th teaspoon. (laughs) And that doesn't really exist in other cultures. So get liberalized with your herbs and spices because they pack a lot of antioxidants and are going to really take and elevate your dishes to the next level. That's a great point. There's just so much flavor in them. Definitely. So beyond flavoring, let's talk about a couple techniques and some simple approaches to get starting in the kitchen. Yeah, I think that, you know, if we're just baking or just steaming, that can really drive a burnout. And I, I think a huge key is using fats. Fats play a big element in retaining and building flavor and allowing those those lipids or fats kind of dance on the tongue, on the palate, to allow flavor to pop. And also they help with nutrient absorption. So retaining fats and using fats is going to be more like pan searing, maybe versus dry grilling or broiling. Also things like roasting, um, so really coating those vegetables in oil, uh, sauteing and, and, and rotating your fat choice is going to be really important as well for variety of flavor and also variety of nutrition. So I like to use grapeseed oil for high heat. I like to use coconut oil. I like to use grass-fed butter and ghee. And then untoasted sesame oil or toasted sesame oil if I want to mix that for like an Asian stir fry. So a lot of the stuff that you're talking about sounds super easy. Just sear it, saute it, use herbs. <laughs> but why do you think people are so intimidated by cooking? And what's the big, I don't know, fear that people aren't just getting in their own kitchens? I think I think the big fear is I, I think the rise of culinary appreciation in our country has been a double-edged sword. I think it's wonderful because it's making people more aware of different ingredients, you know, and I think American culture in the 80s and 90s really only knew about like five vegetables, you know, but now vegetables are becoming more of a star of the show. But also with all of these shows like Top Chef and Cooked and Chopped or I don't know what it's called, I think that we also get very intimidated and we feel like you have to be a chef to cook. Um, And and that in itself, there's this fear of screwing up or, or messing up per se. And so I think that that's a big element of intimidation misunderstanding uh, flavor profiles is huge as well. So I think that's a big piece is understanding the foundations of foods and how foods can be adjusted. I also see undersalting to be a huge issue. And um, I think, you know, that's one of my biggest culprits. Um, If you're eating a whole foods clean diet, stop, you know, avoiding salt. 
Of course, if you're using that Campbell's soup in your recipe and it has 850 milligrams of sodium, you know, in an eighth of a cup of it, and you're using that in a casserole, you don't want to add sea salt or mineral salt or, or iodized salt, um, which is probably what those people are using <laughs> um, to your recipe. But when you're using fresh seasonal produce and proteins and fats, you want to relatively liberally use mineral salt. I like a Himalayan pink sea salt and I like a Celtic salt. Um, and, and good quality sea salt in general are going to add a lot of flavor. They bridge your flavors. So when you're cooking and you taste things staccato, meaning separated or isolated. So an easy example is like a salsa. You know, salsa is going to be made with tomatoes, onion, jalapeno, or some form of a spicy pepper, cilantro, and maybe garlic. If you taste first, you know, the tomato, then the pungent garlic, and that spice gets you at the end, you need to add more salt to round that out. And the other thing that's underutilized beyond salt is acid. So another thing with the salsa example is maybe it needs some lime, maybe it needs some brightness of flavor, and that's going to really dance on the tongue and, and brighten up your dish. Also, beyond all those techniques, undersalting, et cetera, I think people just get stressed about the whole idea of cooking and that it's going to be this production, right? Oh, for sure. I, I think that this this idea of just surrendering to the flow, you know, I think that so many of our meals in our meal plan and on our blog take all of honestly active 30 minutes of time. So the best way versus stressing out and then following that stress by guilt of giving in to buying something pre-prepared or restaurant and then feeling bloated and feeling like you didn't nourish yourself, that that's going to do more harm to your body than just surrendering to the flow. So, you know, put those keys down, put on some music that you like and start chopping and, you know, really prep Prep as far as chopping and cutting cannot outlast more than 10 minutes. I mean, if it's a ratatouille, <laughs> maybe if it's a lot of vegetable chopping, but there's so many kitchen tools now that can help you like food processors and such that really it should be about 15 to 30 minutes hands-on and then maybe some baking or roasting time. And then getting other people involved. I know my favorite time cooking is that if someone's just sitting there, even if they're drinking a glass of wine talking to you, Yeah, it's, it's a event, you know? Right. It's a, it's a moment of catching up about your day. And, you know, neither of us have kids yet, but I envision that that's going to be a big centric element of, I will, that's when you'll get to ask your kids about how their day at school was. And that's where I can connect with my husband. You know, he'll sit at the, the bar of our um, kitchen and whether or not I'm working or he's working um, and, and the other one's cooking, it's a great time to kind of reset, ask about your day, that and the dog walks. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, I think that it, absolutely making it an experience versus something that's a task is, is huge. Right. So where do you think people should start? What's a dish that wouldn't be intimidating that would encourage people to know that they have the skills? Hmm. So of course I'd want to say something simple like searing and, and whatnot, but I think a good, good idea of a place to start that kind of will make you feel empowered in the kitchen is mastering a frittata. Um, in our Naturally Nourished cookbook, we have, I think, two or three different recipes in there. It's a very simple concept. It can, it can be mastered with ease, but it can be very intimidating. And frittatas in themselves can be, you know, any meal of the day. It doesn't just have to be breakfast. Um, and so, you know, it starts with sauteing veggies in, a, in an oil of choice. We usually use grass-fed butter. Um, and, and we have different market frittatas, different choices of combinations of flavors. Um, then you're going to, um, once those vegetables are cooked down to your liking, you're going to whisk your eggs. Um, and then in that, you might add some fresh herbs. You might also add, of course, black pepper and salt. And then you're going to pour that mixture into the pan. 
um, and not uh, move it around much. If you move it at all, it's just to kind of coat the eggs into the pan, one simple swipe of that spatula or spoon, and then undisturbed so that it can create tiny little bubbles. It'll start to cook around the edges first, um, and then it's gonna create tiny little bubbles in the middle. And then you would put about like a quarter cup or a half cup, depending to your liking, of a cheese. So I like to like grade fresh Gouda during that time because you have about six minutes of hands-off time with that frittata kind of just simmering there. And then um, once you put the cheese on, I put that under the broiler. So the broiler is when the flame of your gas stove is on, is on the top versus the bottom. And that's going to create that cooking on the exterior. It's going to harden and crispen the cheese on top and create that caramelization, that yummy uh, mylar browning effect, and cook those eggs through. And then you pull that frittata out, let it rest for a couple minutes, and you slice it into six, and um, you have six different meals. And um, I really recommend using a cast iron skillet for that. And that's definitely a cooking tool that I would strongly recommend. Definitely. So much that you can do with that. Oh, yeah. And you can get a good uh, – Lodge is the brand that I recommend um, if you're not doing like a Le Creuset really fancy one, which are also awesome. But Lodge um, cast irons are also, um, you know, not toxic. They're pre-seasoned. And um, that porous material really helps – with fat um, absorption, flavor absorption, and it's oven safe. So you can do that where you pan sear something like a chicken breast or a steak and then finish it in the oven. Um, and, and so I think that that's a really great option. And they're like 30 bucks or something, really affordable. Yeah, very versatile. Those are great. Totally. And I think another good place to start, I always tell people, is roasting veggies. Oh, yeah. Especially like cauliflower or broccoli where you can just take the flowers off and cut off the root, spread it on a pan. All you have to do is coat it with the fat of choice, ideally a saturated fat that can take some higher heats like coconut oil or, of course, grass-fed butter, maybe some grapeseed oil. And then you just sprinkle sea salt, maybe some fresh herbs, one to three different versions. So maybe rosemary and some thyme or something like that. And then... You basically can pick any vegetable and treat it like that, and it'll taste good. Yeah, and, and you do want higher heat, so like 375, that's going to also – you want that browning. Browning is something that's yummy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, you can get – you can do raw, but, but when you're really looking to start and create a lot of flavor profile, I think that's key, and I think that one just made me hungry, Carly. <laughs> no, and then I just like to get fancy, and you can put truffle salt on yes, almost anything. Any there. I know. It's just my go-to. I already go-to. had it in my head without you saying it. <laughs> It already had truffle salt. <laughs> it's too easy. It always has truffle salt, for sure, <laughs> especially for sure. eggs. Um, Allie, I think there's another technique you always talk about, especially when you do grocery store tours, and it's this concept of when you are cooking vegetables, the root to fruit concept of cooking. Tell listeners about that. Sure. So thinking conceptually about the anatomy of the vegetables. So roots are going to be things that grow in the ground. And if you get your CSA box or you bought stuff at the farmer's market and you don't know how to prepare it, think of botanically what it is. Does it grow in the ground? That's a root. If it's a root, it's going to need much more cooking time to break down. So if it's an onion or garlic or carrots, you're going to start your recipe by sauteing those things. Or if it's a rutabaga, you know, or a sweet potato, those are going to be roasted in the oven for a longer period of time. So roots require longer cook time. If you're thinking of a stir fry and taking it to the next level, you know, after you've done your onions and garlic, then you're going to go to your stems. So stems are things like celery, asparagus. Uh, if you're cooking with chard, that would be destemming the chard, re- re- holding and reserving those leaves, but sauteing those chard stems at this time. Then the next piece would be the fruit. So root, stem, fruit. 
fruit is what we're speaking to botanically. So not a fruit per se, as far as a vegetable or a fruit. These are things that have seeds in them. So this is things like peppers, uh, tomatoes, even zucchini or eggplant. Uh, any of these are going to be fruits and they're going to be sauteed after we've done the stems, which are more woody, of course. So also same, same thing, a little less roasting time if we're cooking those in the oven. And then lastly would be the leaves. So the leaves, we like to retain a little bit of turgidity or water content or crunch. So you can toss those in at the end um, once you've removed the dish from heat and just let them wilt in with the heat of the other vegetables. Or you might want to braise those. So if you were just making, let's say, collard greens, maybe you would just saute the onion and garlic. Then you would throw in those, those uh, collard greens and then add like a quarter cup of bone broth. That would be braising. Braising is adding a little bit of liquid in that cooking process, and that's going to cook those down. And that will taste much better than steamed greens, which are just yes. bleh. I, I just won't go there anymore, honestly. <laughs> No, that's really helpful. The root to fruit is always gets me when I can't remember what to cook first. I think yeah. it's just super, super simple, easy to follow. And beyond that, there are some other techniques that you use to plan your week, especially maybe on a Sunday when you're getting everything together. So talk about how you get ready for a week. So, you know, I think beyond the ideas of, of the concepts of, you know, selecting again that roast, the ground meat, the one fish, and then the, the steak or the chop, um, you know, it's it's planning, which is really important and playing with your food flavors. So like I said, once you, I, I actually do my planning post shopping, it's a little counterintuitive, but I like to, again, work seasonally first. So I recommend that you start with the market. Then you do your uh, grocery shopping. You might have some inspiration of recipes after the market based on the new stuff you bought. And then, you know, when you're really thinking through your foods, thinking of how to brighten up flavors and play with different flavor profiles. So maybe doing something with those jarred tomatoes and then taking that more Italian. So if we have spaghetti squash and ground beef, maybe I'm going to make a spaghetti squash casserole. So that's going to be easy. It's going to occupy one pan. I like to think through the process of the flavor profile, the equipment required. And again, you can use equipment to be your friend, not something that's intimidating. So, you know, do I need a casserole dish? Perfect. I can whip, whip that up on a Sunday as well as roasting a family chicken and then making the bone broth and getting that started after that Sunday night dinner. And um, I have a couple a couple cooks moving, a couple things happening, and it's less intimidating on Monday and Tuesday. I have multiple meals throughout the week. So I think, again, surrendering to the flow and getting to that just do it mentality and staying inspired by the seasonal items and then thinking through the process of what technique and how to keep things varied is, is a huge uh, step towards success. And I think it's important to note if you aren't cooking at all, the first step is really just cooking one meal. It's not this yes. gold standard of cooking everything for the week for and sure. having it prepared. It's you know the good, better, best that we talk about. And Anything that's going to make you not be intimidated, just get in there and try. Absolutely. And I think that's something that is important that, that I want you guys to know about as listeners is on our uh, blog on AllieMillerRD.com, or I think it might be on our shop, uh, we do have a link to our Amazon store. And so if you're looking at being inspired with tools that help to accelerate your kitchen technique, or if you just want to know, you know, I talked about, for instance, the lodge pan that I really like as a stainless, as I'm sorry, a cast iron pan. What knives, I think a, a good chef's knife is an essential tool. I don't know if you'd agree, but oh yes. I mean, <laughs> it, cooking with dull knives is is absolutely atrocious and, and so arduous. It makes the process 
so annoying. Once so, you get a sharp knife, you can't go back. Yeah, so a good chef's knife, quality cutting boards, and then some some tools like a mandolin, a zester, a food processor, a Vitamix. Some of those are staples. Now, they range, these tools, from 20 bucks to 350 bucks. But the higher price ones, you want to make sure have a really good 20-plus year warranty. And, and then that's really a good investment, I think, for sure. Definitely. And I think... Allie, you cover a lot of the things we talked about today in the Optimal Eating Virtual class. Totally. There's a bunch of recipes, at least seven foundational recipes in there where you're making a nut milk, you're making a frittata like we talked about. Homemade salad dressing, Green a, a stir fry. Yeah, yeah, yep, so definitely. If you're curious how all of this works and you want to see someone do it, there's no better place to start than just actually seeing Allie in her own kitchen and doing yes. it. And I think once you see how easy it is, you'll be less intimidated. And I think there's a whole section where we talk about the blending of flavors. So fats, acids, salts, and sweets. And so as I'm talking about these flavor profiles, that's really huge to master because when you taste something and you don't like it, you have to start to understand why and what it needs. You know, what does this need? Okay, it needs to brighten up. It's too bland. Okay, so that means we need an acid. So now, what acid do I want? Do I want citrus? Do I want vinegar? Do I, and so we talked through that in the last video of the Optimal Eating class, and I think that that's a really helpful tool. And there's also a download table that was inspired by, by Rebecca Katz that talks about um, how to balance that FASS technique, the fat, acid, salt, and sweet. Yeah, I definitely urge you all to download it and check it out. But I think that does it for today. Yeah. <laughs> As always, connect with us on AllieMillerRD.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to check out what we're eating and continue the conversation. Yep. And check out when you're on the website, the podcast page, leave comments, subscribe to our RSS feed so you never miss an episode, and check out our meal plans and blog. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Carly at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well. <laughs>